I would want them to know that we're not that different. You know, we all want the same things. We want good schools for our kids. We want enough food on our table. We want enough money in the bank account to take a vacation every once in a while. We want to love our wives and husbands. We want to play catch in the front lawn. We, we disagree on how, how to get there. Welcome to the Depolarized Podcast. I'm Dan Koch. And I'm Ellen Morrow. And this is a place where we try and find common ground at the intersection of politics, psychology, and faith. Last week, if you were listening, we had kind of an interesting, a different episode, was the first episode where we were listening to non-white Christians, and all we did, basically, was listen. Ellen, did you feel left out? No, I loved it. I loved it. I felt fine not talking (laughs) for once. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I still got a little bit of my jabs in there, just through narration, but... Yeah, we, we, we are trying to practice that. We're trying to practice listening to the stories of people who've had different experiences than we have had, and we hope that that was helpful for you guys. This week, we're kind of kicking it back to a more normal, depolarized vibe, and we're basically going to be going through the questions that we've asked the 19% and the 81%, and we're going to be sort of thinking about it and analyzing it, much like we did those episodes. Because, though, there were those questions about their experience growing up non-white, I did have a more limited time with them on the sort of nuts and bolts political questions. So not everybody answered every question. So we're going to jump around a bit more than we did on those other episodes. And then there's Candace. Ellen, you know Candace. I love Candace. She's a close friend of mine. My interview with Candace was so wonderful and weird and wide ranging that that's going to actually be its own episode. So we heard from her last week. She's the Korean American. And we're not going to hear from her this week, but we will get... Candace in glorious 4K I'm really glad. Ultra HD next week. She's a whole episode. She that's a that's one way to describe a person. Yeah. That, that I'm a segment. She's an entire episode. That girl's a whole episode. <laughs> now before we start, I do have one kind of correction and apology to make from the Trump voter episodes. I got an email from Seth. You remember Seth? Which one was Seth? Seth is the guy with he has kind of a low sounding recording of his voice. He's the guy who said it would really be great if my friends didn't assume that I was a racist right oh, away. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that Seth said was that Donald Trump says what's on his mind, and by and large, he's not lying. Mm. And then we took And then I ran, I ran with that. Uh, yeah, I did too. I think I list, I came up with like seven instances of him lying. Uh, <laughs> poor, Seth, poor Seth. Had he been sitting in the room with us, we probably would have not. Well, sure. And so Seth pointed out to me, which I and I think it was helpful, he said... Look, in the context, what I was saying was that he was not lying the way that politicians lie about what they actually think and feel. Hmm. So I would rephrase that as Trump is authentic. He tells the truth about his opinions and his feelings. Like it is. Yeah. Well, well, like he is. Maybe he tells it like he is. And a lot of politicians don't do that. That's true. When Hillary Clinton says something, I think I have no idea if she believes it. I think she's saying what she needs to say. And that's how a lot of politicians act, and Trump doesn't act that way, and there is some value in that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. That's fair, I so, think. I think Seth's right, and I want to correct that. Sorry, Seth. Now, for me, I would put authenticity still lower on the list of presidential virtues than truthfulness. And so, even though Trump feels this way, he's still constantly saying things that are false, sometimes purposely, sometimes sure. maybe he's just I misinformed. I mean, you can be authentic and be a dick. <laughs> that's true. You can be. But I just wanted to make sure we clear that up because that's true. I, I did mischaracterize Seth or I didn't understand him well enough. And 
So setting the record okay. straight. Seth, I hope that you feel like you've had your day in court. Yeah, good. Okay, so now to get back into this new episode, the first thing we should do is remind ourselves who we're listening to. So once again, let's meet our voters. And this time, they're not just going to say their name and how they identify ethnically. They're also going to say which Christian tradition they come from. My name is Jason Brooks. I'm 36. I live in L.A., but I've lived all over the country and the world. And I identify mostly as the, with the African-American tradition. I grew up in a sort of Southern Baptist tradition and then walked away from faith for a, a while and then came back to faith in a Presbyterian context and then now in a sort of neo-Anabaptist tradition. So it's a mashup of all things. So I sort of pushed against the label. So you're uh, an ecumenical, an exactly. ecumenical <laughs> wide, wide yeah. view Christian. Yeah. I feel like a nomad of some sorts and it's, it's sometimes homeless spiritually, but okay, uh, yeah. My name is Rachel Beatty. I am 34 and I live in Mount Vernon, Washington. I identify as Latina. I grew up in the Episcopal Church and currently just identify as mainline Protestant. My name is Jehan Matthew. I am 34 years old. I live in Sunnyvale, California, and I've lived here most of my life. Ethnically, I'm an Indian. I was born in India, lived in the Middle East for three years, but moved here to Sunnyvale, California when I was three years old. So most of my life has been here in the States. I think non-denominational would probably be the best term that I've you know, heard. Although recently, I think something that's appealed to me is the phrase interdenominational. I'm Justin Gibney. I'm 36 years old. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm an African-American. So I'm a traditional black Baptist. As I said before, I grew up in the general black traditional church culture. But traditional black Baptist, I go to a black Baptist church now. Ellen, let's start out by acknowledging the fact that you and I are both white. Very. And for many of the people who are listening, they're white. And this is like a slightly uncomfortable conversation by definition, right? No, I don't think it has to be. But yeah, it's a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I wish that we weren't two white people sitting and like picking apart interviews from people of color. That is not awesome feeling, but it's not the, it's not the ideal situation to be no. in, but there is a reason that we're doing that, right? We want to compare it to the answers from the other yeah. voters. And so we do have to kind of treat it equally before we start doing that. I actually, I wanted to ask a couple people why it's difficult for white people or for the members of the dominant culture to talk about the way that members of the non-dominant culture have been treated and so I did. Why is it difficult for us as white Christians to acknowledge the fact that whiteness is the standard? Power and comfort are a seductive combination. As a straight male, I have a lot of power and I have a lot of comfort in my daily life. And when my sisters come to me and say, hey, dude, this is unequal. This is not the way it should be. You can walk into a salary negotiation and get more money than I can. You can walk down the street at five o'clock in the morning, blacked out drunk, and not ever have to worry about your sexual safety. I, if I actually want to love God and love people and reconcile with my sisters, I have to acknowledge that and support systems to dismantle that and push back against people who would say this is the norm. That's okay. So switching it back to race, I want to make this really clear. The violence of whiteness is self-abusive. 
So if you go back and read the journals of early Americans who owned other Americans, they lament the institution of slavery and wrestle, wrestle with the brutality of slavery in their journals. And I wish this was my opinion, but it, it is not. When you look at Jefferson, when you look at founding fathers, when you look at plantation owners, their journals, their own private thoughts, they wrestle with owning other people. We, we know this from personal experience, right? Some of my most shameful memories from my childhood are when I stole something from my sister, hit my sister, blamed my sisters for stuff they didn't do. So when we execute violence, we know that it's self-abusive. And we have been violent for long enough, and we have to have the difficult conversations to move and pursue a path towards a spiritual maturity. I don't think I've ever heard anyone mention that slave owners ever journaled and wrestled with that. I've never heard that before. Now yeah. I want to go read that. I want to find out what that is. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And, I mean, it makes sense. I would. Ho- I mean, I would hope <laughs> so, but I just. I guess maybe I've never thought about it, or I just thought that... Yeah, that's new to me as well. I've never read any of those journals. No no one's ever recommended, you know, this passage of Jefferson or whatever, where he struggles with that. Not that it would help. I mean, it's nice. Maybe it atones in some way that they struggled with it, but it doesn't really help. Well, yeah, I think what Jason's saying is it, it helps us in the present get a clearer view of what you know, even at a lower level, ongoing violence, Mm -hmm. ongoing injustice does to us, even as the dominant culture. I asked the same question to John Ward from Yahoo News. You recall him from uh, previous episodes. And the reason I wanted to ask him is because he's written about and has been very honest about his process as a white male Christian who's gone through a lot of change on precisely this issue. What roadblocks stand in the way of a well-meaning person who wants to talk to someone they disagree with and wants to relate, but feels themselves drawn toward these sweeping generalizations or these labels, these these epithets. What is going on that keeps us from being more gracious and asking more questions and making fewer pronouncements? People are busy. People are tired. People have jobs. They have children. They have obligations. People are human. They are scared. They are intimidated by the prospect of finding those conversations. And I think speaking as a white male and analyzing my own perspective in the past, one of the big roadblocks that was key for me to get past was a sort of subterranean part of my psyche that looked at this conversation about race and wondered, if I engage in it, what is on the other side of this conversation? If I admit that this is a conversation worth having, that white people are in any way complicit or wrong or have done things in the past that were wrong, even if I had nothing to do with it. What is on the other side of that? What is required of me? What do people on the other side of that argument want from me? Ellen, do you ever feel that fear when you're thinking about stuff like this? Oh, yeah. Big time. I mean, I'm, I worry... I think I, I worry that I don't know how to approach the conversation without feeling like... I'm obligated to have that conversation and that's because mm. I want to bring it up or it's it's kind of a hot topic right now and that's why I want to bring it up or you're my token black friend and that's why I want to break it, bring it up. I don't know how to have it organically come up. Yeah, it's weird. And then I don't, I don't even want to talk about the difficulties of having the conversation because those difficulties feel like they pale in comparison to the difficulties of the person I, so that stu- I want to have the conversation exactly right. with. It's right. so stupid. I mean, it, well, I guess you just have to say both. You just have to say, 
it is awkward to know how to start or have these conversations. I have a lot of questions because it's not a thing I do all the time. It doesn't feel normal. And yet at the same time, the reason to have the conversation is because... Right. It's because I feel this way. Yeah. yeah, There's obviously been national sins in the past that have effects today. And and so we want to have it. It's just difficult. But we do have people that we can access who have done this. Did Trump's election make you or anyone in your life fear for your safety or your livelihood? And has that feeling changed at all in the past year since the inauguration? Yeah, definitely. I would say yes. I think it made me fear for my safety and other people that I know their safety as well. I don't know that it made me fear for my livelihood as much, if that means like my financial stability, but I definitely felt fear for folks that I know who are in the middle of immigration proceedings trying to establish their citizenship. It made me fearful. I knew that it was going to embolden folks who are sort of pro-white in a violent or scary way, <laughs> um, that it was going yeah, like, to, they're going to feel more justified in, in their opinion and voices and that that was going to create an environment of a lot of conflict. And that made me feel really scared. Can you give us an example of one of these friends of yours who are in the middle of immigration proceedings? Can you just put a little bit of meat on the bone there? So people who are either on DACA that I know who have some connection that would maybe lead to them being able to gain citizenship, feeling like that that was now not going to be a possibility? No, no, it really hasn't. And I know it has for other people, but not in the circles in which I find myself. From people I talked to, there were people who feel for their safety and livelihood. I spoke at a church and I was talking about the election and there were some people who were immigrants from Mexico. And they said, we are seriously afraid of what will happen if he wins this election. And I could tell it was very sincere. It hurt me to hear that. And I understood where they were coming from. So, yeah, I had that experience. I personally didn't feel that type of threat. I felt threatened in other ways, but not any necessarily physical threat or anything like that. I assume you have not been in touch with any of those people because my follow up is if that's changed at all since his inauguration. So I haven't spoken to the immigrant gentleman that that spoke up, but some of my friends, yeah, they still they still feel that way. They feel threatened. They don't know what he's going to do. They don't think that he's sensible enough. And at any time, you know, it's, it's just really volatile. I can't imagine. I mean, you and I get kind of all riled up about stuff Trump does or says or whatever. Sure. But no matter what he does or says... We're not going to get plucked out of our houses. Right. I can't, I just, I can't wrap my brain around what that must feel like. Yeah. I mean, insofar as I ever personally worry, it is only because of something that would affect the entire nation. So a nuclear war or, you know, a depression or a really bad recession or something that affects everybody. I'm not worried about being singled out (laughs) for being a middle-class white homeowner. That's, I'm, you know, I'm not worried about that. So one of the things that we have come across so far is that most of the voters we've interviewed have wanted sort of the pro-life movement to be enlarged. They want it to mean more than simply making abortion illegal or hard to get. 
And for people within communities that are hit harder by many of society's ills, like poverty, conscription into the military, lack of social services, the option of single-issue voting against simply the legality of abortion causes even more cognitive dissonance than it does for some of our white friends. I fundamentally believe that all human beings have been imprinted with the image of God. And that is a royal decree that I will never really understand. That said, from conception to death, I am pro the flourishing of humanity. We're going to go into abortion. That's going to be there. But also I'm pro-education. I'm pro-flourishing from cradle to the grave, right? So I think we have a fundamental lack of imagination if our solution to unwanted pregnancies is to make abortion illegal. I will hope that the legacy of this generation would be to teen mothers, to people who have unwanted pregnancies, don't kill the baby. Please, whatever you do, don't kill the baby. Give them to us. And we can guarantee that the baby and you will have a measurably better life because we will leverage the resources of our communities to both invest in you and the baby. And this is a better option. I present to you because of the gospel, a better option than just abortion. I think it's really hard for me to hear people who voted for Trump because of abortion. Well, I, I hate everything else that Trump did. I don't like anything he did. I, da, 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 I disagree. He's a disgusting man, but you know, we got an abortion. When all these kids are born and all these kids are not aborted, They're going to come out to be black and Muslim and gay and everything in between that this guy has deeply offended. I'm assuming from our conversation and our friendship that you tend to vote Democratic. Is that true? Yes. Is it hard for you as someone who values life Mm -hmm. and who wants to be pro-life but wants a more robust agenda for Mm pro-life policies? Mm -hmm. Is it difficult to square that with voting Democratic? How do you think about that? How do you process through that tension? I mean, the same way I have to process through the tension of the fact that Democrats and Republicans both support a war. Life is more than one particular topic. And so there are going to be on both sides people that support and don't support all aspects of life. And so I have to choose which ones are most important to me in that same way. And so for me, life is also, I have to think about the people that I know and love who are in the military who are going to get sent to war. I have to think about that when I vote too. And that's just as important to me as the issue of abortion. Do you consider yourself pro-life? I do. What does that term mean to you? Certainly it means being pro-life in terms of unborn babies. I think though it also extends to the death penalty. I think it extends to end-of-life type things. And I don't think we should have doctor-assisted suicide. I think that we should we should have more robust health care. I think we need to help mothers raise babies. I think we need to not just prevent them from having abortions, but we need to give them an alternative. I think we need to be teaching men and women to be moms and dads. I'd say men. I think moms, they're pretty good just just being moms. But I think we need to teach men to be men, men to be dads, men to take responsibility. And I think that abortion is sometimes a, uh, an easy out for a guy, you know, frankly. But I think, I think being pro-life to me is not just about abortion. I know that's the hot button issue, but it's, it's about more than that. I do. I would say complete the f- full life. And that, to me, that doesn't just mean 
life for the unborn. It means life for people who are already here, support for women who are in really, really tough situations and understanding the desperation that someone might be in and trying to prevent people from being in that position. That's not an easy question for me. And I think both sides sometimes make it a little bit too easy. Yes, I'm pro-life. I don't I wish that no one ever had to have an abortion. And I'd like to limit that as much as possible. But I'm not going to demonize people and act like there's never could be a situation where someone could get that desperate to consider it. Ellen, there's a lot to unpack here. Let's start with Jason. When he said, when those babies come out, they're going to be black, black Muslim, Muslim and gay. gay. You, <laughs> you had a little yelp of, of joy or something. Can you respond to that? I just love that? when I hear s- someone that I agree with and I just start to tune out and then they say something and I think, (laughs) oh my gosh, I've never thought about it that way. I love that. Well, and he wasn't totally clear. It's going to come in on a later episode or later this episode, but Jason is is not for outlawing abortion. So when he said, you're going to have that, like abortion is going to be allowed. Right. But yada, 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 yada. Mm -hmm. Right. So you don't totally agree with him, but you like that point. I, I don't. I'm a realist, so I don't necessarily think it should. I don't think making abortion illegal is the answer. I'll say that. Okay. But you might hold. I would love for it to just not exist, but making it illegal is not going to help. So do you not support efforts to make abortions harder to get? Or do you, or some of them, or where, where do you actually stand on that policy? I don't think we've talked about that. If I was a, it's tough, man. I wouldn't stop anyone from making abortion illegal, right? Hmm. Okay. So if if our government is putting in place policy changes to make abortion illegal, I'm just going to stand yeah. by. You'll and be not the silent majority anything. in that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. However, I'm not actively pursuing the illegality of abortion As a strategy because yeah. Yeah, it just does not because it's not the solution. Well, that's, that's good. That's a helpful delineation to know uh, in terms of your position. So besides Jason's comments, you, you wrote some other notes. What else stood out to you about that group of um, answers? Ju- I'm just glad that both Rachel and I think it was Jehan pointed out the co- consistent life ethic, which is what mm-hmm. I believe, and I'm not 100% there yet, but I'm about 99% there, which is being pro true pro-life, you have to also discover new feelings about the death penalty and war, war and assisted suicide yeah. and all these things. It's not just um, what happens in the womb. Yeah. That's really heavy stuff. And it's really interesting to contrast this with the white Trump voters and white non-Trump voters that we interviewed earlier. Mm-hmm. None of them dived in really deep to the socioeconomic stuff I, that I remember well, Arlen did. Arlen said, you know, not everyone's working with the same toolbox, he right. said. And I think he's referencing that, for instance. Arlen was one of our 19 percenters. Yeah. And there will be some non-evangelicals, which I've heard and you haven't heard, who are going to make some very similar arguments as we're hearing today. I think the overwhelming answer that's so obvious to me is to support women and make it so that they have more alternatives and they, they feel more supported. I would just like to say that Cardi B is killing it right now. No pun intended. She's, she's keeping her baby. She's not, but her, she's killing it, her career Yeah, because she has decided 
that why can't she have a career and a baby? Why can't she be pregnant and curse prolifically? I love her so much. <laughs> I I don't remember as much of a difference as you are remembering with the with the white evangelicals on either side. Uh, certainly not the 19 percenters. Well, I think it's just that these guys that we just heard of kind of jumped in a little bit deeper to the compassion towards the women that are having abortions. And I would say they maybe they started with the socioeconomic factors, whereas maybe the yeah. other voters would get to that later in the answer. Yeah, but they don't necessarily disagree. No, no, no. I sure. just think that these people that we've just heard from actually have grown up around the issues. Hmm. And before we were talking to white people who have an opinion about other people dealing with this stuff, mm. where the all these people have been around the people that we're talking about, the right. people that are that don't have options, you know? Yeah. Well, just geographically, I mean, Rachel and her husband work with seasonal produce pickers in Skagit Valley, oh, Washington. I did not see that coming. I did not know what you were going <laughs> to say. I didn't see that yeah, coming. Yeah, so, th- so they're really, they're in that world. And so you're talking about migrants. Yes. Yeah. Um, Among other people and and also uh, returning inmates and many of them from the Mexican-American gangs up there. And Justin's in Atlanta. Jason grew up in Watts. I mean, right. So we there's that's what I'm talking about. There's certainly a greater familiarity with poverty, for instance, than all white people from Seattle. Right. Yeah. I did can have whatever opinion that they want, including me about abortion, because, you know, we can't really talk about the poor women of color that are feeling like they need abortions because we've never been in there. Well, yeah, there's there's a bit of gravitas to their answer. But so when we talk about this distinction, right, that they're more up close and personal history with these societal ills, you know, I've actually wondered about this a lot. Like when and from where does this demographic split come from? Like why are non-white Christians so much less likely to vote Republican? Right. Like we talked to, what was her name? From the poll. Roxanne Stone. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'm sorry. Roxanne Stone from uh, Barna Group. Did you know that when you have a baby, you lose 3% of the gray matter in your brain? I've heard that. Yep, that's How me. much gray matter does one need? Well, more than what I have. <laughs> but she had talked about how 82 or 83% of non-white evangelicals had not voted for Trump. Correct? Yeah, right. Okay. And so I wonder where that stuff comes from. And we're going to get into this more, of course, in future episodes But here's a little bit of insight from Caitlin Beatty. She's the former editor of Christianity Today. The conservative political wing in our country has not prioritized addressing systemic racial injustice in our country's past, in our present day. Now, that that is not to say that all political conservatives just don't care about racial injustice or are personally racist. But I think in terms of policy in terms of the priorities of policies that are being presented, you're not going to see that be a priority among most conservative politicians and policymakers. Well, so that would go some way to explaining why African-American evangelicals would vote for the Democratic candidate, right? If they, mm. if they know that, hey, the Republican Party doesn't have our back. issues abortion and their lived experiences having been different but now we're going to get to some of the more standard questions that we asked the other voters so let's get into faith a little bit 
Remember we said, what if a listener is thinking, are these people really Christians? And we said, well, the best way to do that, to figure that out is to ask them what the gospel is. So we did that as well with these non-white Christian voters. We asked them, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ in your own words? Humans, because of our own free will, our predilection to hurt one another, have ruined ourselves and ruined the world and have hurt each other. And that we need somebody to fix it. We all know and feel and lament the brokenness of the world. And we need somebody to come in and fix it. And Jesus, in the form of the man God, is the one person who can come in and take all of the things that we have destroyed and messed up and fix it. And that, that to me, is profoundly good news, right? He can both fix the things that I want to change in myself, and he can also fix the things that are broken in the system, and he can fix the world that we have destroyed, right? So he can, he can renew all things. God is not a God that stays high and mighty on his throne, but God is a God who comes down among his people, is born into his people, in the dark and poor places. (laughs) He taught us what it looks like to be God in the flesh. It is possible to love and be loved the way that God intended us to do. The good news that comes from that is that because Jesus goes to those dark places, we don't have to live under this idea that we need to be perfect or rich or any of those things that, that Jesus is even in the darkest and lowest places and not just even there, but that that's where he he comes to first. And so that's the good news that in our darkest and most shameful and dirtiest places, Jesus is primarily there. So you can take that in a personal sense or you can take that in a societal sense, but that's where Jesus wants to be. And that's good news because that's where we need him most. God's not just a God who's up there remote and removed, but a God who's entered into the human story through Jesus Christ. And he did so because he he wants a relationship with us to the point of doing whatever it would take to redeem our brokenness, which meant dying on the cross. And then he rose again. And in doing so, he bridged that divide of sin between broken humanity and the perfection of God. And humanity was covered in Christ's atonement and can be reunited with God. What's the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ? It is that he died for our sins, and because of that, if we have faith in him and turn away from the world, we can be saved and have eternal life. I've heard that so many times. i said it so many times, but every time I say it, it's moving because the idea of redemption is just, is just an amazing, amazing reality. And for that reason, I can never allow myself to be cynical. I can never allow myself to be hopeless because I've been given so much hope and an opportunity that I wasn't worthy of. What stood out to me the most about those answers is that they took, in a couple different ways, totally orthodox claims of Christian theology, basic gospel stuff, but they said it in such a way that it applied to social, material, this-worldly realities. So just there, Justin gives like a very basic reformed understanding of salvation and says, so that means I can never be cynical. I can never be hopeless in the fight for justice. Rachel says Christ comes to the dark places. He's born in a manger. He, He hangs out with the lowly. And that's a both personal thing. You know, my heart, Christ's home. He wants every room of the house, but it's also a social thing. Christ is with the migrant as they are being persecuted. 
Um, it's almost like there's a different application. But it, but what I loved is it's completely orthodox claims. There's nothing here that is weird or like fringe radical theology. Mm-hmm. It's like straight up four spiritual laws just applied to the world that they live in and right. inhabit. I just like how, you know, both Rachel and Jason mentioned both sides of that. It is individual and it is social. You know, we talked about Rachel, but Jason also said that Jesus can both fix the things that I want to change myself and he can also fix the things that are broken in the system. How should the teachings of Jesus inform a voter? How should they inform the platform of a candidate or an office holder? What does God require of his children as we live in society? Again, going back to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God and love people. They sound really simple, but they're incredibly difficult to execute. Yeah, I think that the teachings of Jesus should really inform everything we do or touch. And we're called to be actively engaged in this world. We're called to be culture makers. So Christ should certainly inform how we vote. And I think we should vote toward justice, toward equity, toward an open and civil public square that welcomes dissenting opinions. And we don't only have two options. You know, I I wonder if every Christian that was struggling to vote chose to vote for somebody else. And let's say Hillary won. But but let's say that, that Trump lost because every Christian that was conflicted chose not to vote, let's say. What statement would that send to the world? Like, if I wonder, Gary Johnson you know, got 12% of the vote, <laughs> and there were 150 op-eds from evangelicals saying, sorry, GOP, not Trump. You better believe the GOP would give them a better candidate four years yep. later. Absolutely. Yep. They, GOP could not possibly afford to lose that many votes. Totally. And, and, you know, forget the GOP, just the world. The way, I mean, we're watching, and are we going to take a stand yeah. and, and not say, well, these are the only two, so lesser of two evils. First of all, very hard to make the case that one of them is a lesser of two evils. Let's just say that. But also, we don't have to vote that way, right? I mean, sure, maybe you're throwing it away. Maybe we have to do this. You're really not making any difference at all if you don't vote for one of these guys. But to me, the conversations I've been able to have with people to say, you know, I chose, I chose not to vote for either, and here's why. I think that that statement is is significant, and I wasn't doing it as a statement. It's just I can't I can't throw my vote behind this person. You know, so either, you didn't frankly. vote for either of them. That's right. I think it tells us that we should go out to the public square, that we should go into the voting box with our conviction and our compassion, understanding the rules and guidelines that He gave us, but also understanding the compassion He gave us. And that even if we disagree with someone, even if they're living in rebellion against God, the only reason we're not in that position is because of God's grace. It's not because of anything that we've done. And so if we truly understand that, we have no choice but to be compassionate towards other people. But if we really love them, we're not just going to tell them what they want to hear. We're going to give them God's truth. And so it's really about compassion and conviction, biblical values and social justice, love and truth. And when we can combine those things and put them into the public square, then we're really putting an authentic witness into society. We're going to hear from Jason again right now. And we're going to say that his neo-anabaptism is showing. He mentioned that earlier. But Dan, that's that's the nerdiest theological joke I've heard. I don't... What? (laughs) Ellen, you should know me better than to think that I would just end it right there. I mean to say, many of you probably don't know what neo-anabaptist theology is. (laughs) For those of you who don't, think Greg Boyd 
from season one, How Political Should a Christian Be? One of our most popular episodes from the first season. He basically says Christians are not required to engage that much in politics. They ought to be mostly doing other things in their communities. Now, Greg and I had a little bit of repartee back and forth on that. If you will. If you will. (laughs) And you can go listen to that for a bigger picture. But here's Jason talking about that. I'm not interested in putting my hope in or participating in existing systems of empire. I am interested in using my privilege, my power, my creativity, and my intelligence, and the gifts that I've been given to make life better for other folks. My hope is in Jesus Christ. And going back to the Eucharist, I'm formed because I'm pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ. That said, I do have agency. I do live in a system that gives me power and influence, and I will use that influence and power to love God and love people. So I will vote for and align with candidates that do that, that love God and love people, but I will also advocate at the local level for bus lines and garbage routes and tenants associations that make the lives of the people immediately around me better. So I'm not talking about at this abstract level, I'm just going to vote at national politics. I'm talking about Christians can love people well, love their neighborhood well by going to the city council meetings and saying like, hey, you need to pick up trash twice a week because the rats come if you don't pick up once a week. I'm talking about going to your local school board and say like, hey, our church meets right across the street from your school. We'll paint your, your school once a year or twice a year. Or, hey, you guys need extra crossing guards. Save that money, put it back into the kids' education, and we will provide a crossing guard yeah. from our from our resources, right? So I'm talking about that creativity and that use of the creative gift of intelligence to come up with real solutions for real people in real situations. And that gives glory to God way more than voting for Trump or not even voting for Trump. How about the teachings of Jesus informing the behavior or platform of a candidate or office holder. And I'm particularly interested in you as a campaign manager, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So as a candidate, one of the first things I ask a candidate and and to be very clear, I don't really push candidates. I don't believe in, but at the same time, I don't expect them to be necessarily sanctified or anything like that. Right. Well, the first thing I ask him is what is your core? Where do you draw the line? What are the things that you have to do? And what are the things that you absolutely won't do? Write that down and make sure that you always stay within those bounds and that you stay with your core. Then we can start talking about other things. But again, just like a voter, like we just talked about, the perfect candidate to me would say, I have to represent compassion and conviction. I have to care about the poor. I have to care about the unborn. And I have to represent the Christian family and sexual ethic in places where it may not be welcome. But helping people understand that I do it with compassion and I do it with an understanding of ideological pluralism, cultural pluralism, but knowing, you know, where I'm rooted. What does God require of his followers? Compassion. I don't know exactly where that lands when it comes to policy. Sometimes we can go too far and say God demands this specific policy. But what we do know is that there needs to be compassion, a value of family. Even if the law has to be enforced to some extent, we can do it without the vitriol. But first being compassionate to see what can we do and what is our obligation here? Are we treating these people as people? Are we being humane? Those are the first questions I would ask.
also asked them why they just plainly why they didn't vote for Trump. Right? I knew I was forgetting something. Okay. Can no, we of please, course I. Can we please I get asked. to that part? Okay. Here they are. Why they didn't vote for Trump. I find him to be offensive. If I going back to Jesus, if my if my if, right the Pharisees and the Sadducees asked asked Jesus, what's the number one commandment? He says, love God with all your mind, soul, body, and heart, and then love people. Right. So if I'm trying to love God and love people really well, the policies, or I should say, the lack of policies, and also the demeanor, the lack of civil discourse, the lack of being able to fundamentally disagree with folks in a way that still honors and fans the flame of the Imago Dei in them, uh, I just I found untenable. So I, I could not support him, even under the auspices of sort of conservative values or abortion or whatever else should be compelling. I just could not bring myself to do that. You know, generally I'll vote conservatively, but it's really by issue versus by candidate. And in the 2016 election, you did not vote for Donald Trump. That's correct. Why did you not vote for him? You know, I, don't, I didn't think he was a leader worthy of following. I think part of it for me was such a significant portion of self-professed Christians in America had flocked to him. And that was really surprising to me. You know, I didn't really understand that. It caught me off guard. There's a savior on the throne and he will be that savior on the throne regardless of who's sitting in the White House. And to me, so many of the conversations I had with people that were Christians, Christians who I respect as Christians, so not like, I mean, people that I really look up to and admire, and they were voting for Trump, which that for me was also like, I got to take these people seriously and have legitimate conversations because these are good people, right? And they're making what they think is the best prayerful decision they can make. Yeah. But I didn't you know, vote that way because I felt like a lot of that vote going for Trump, at least in the you know conversations I had with people, there was this hope that was being placed in that office that I did not agree with. That hope shouldn't be there. You know, I mean, you want your president to be, you know, a stand-up guy and do great things and hopefully further your cause, whatever that cause may be. But for me, I didn't vote for Trump because he was not a leader worthy of following. And I, I would want to be able to ideally, maybe this is wishful thinking, but I'd, I'd want to be able to have my kids look up to the president. And he was not a man that I could do that for. Where do I begin? A general disrespect for people of color, a general disrespect for women, and a feeling that he wasn't prepared to do the job, that it was all talk, that he didn't take the time to be diligent. And so there's a number of reasons, whether it's how he talked about Muslims, how he talked about women, but he just was not deserving to be in that position. Not enough respect for the people that he would be trying to lead. What was that line from Jason that you loved? Oh, he was. Fan the flamed of the Ima- of the Imago Day in in them. That's good. That's poetic. I love that. I don't know what that means, but I love it. <laughs> you remember that we asked the nineteen and eighty one percenters how they would respond to a Christian from the opposite camp saying, "What's the big deal?" Oh yeah, sure, right. yeah, yeah. So we asked these voters if a white Christian Trump voter asked you, "What's the big deal with having voted for Trump?" How would you respond? Here's their answers. So I, in this current climate and this sort of human nature, I would want to be really humble and figure out and ask them more questions than telling them what they should or should not have done. Followed up by that, I would just tell my story and say, hey, I grew up in 
a really, really rough part of LA in the mid nineties that when the say no to drugs campaign was going full force, I watched a lot of police brutality. I watched a lot of systems that were constructed and implemented by the Republican powers that destroy people's lives. I can totally and have spent a lot of time empathizing and trying to understand why somebody would and could vote for Trump. If abortion is your top priority and you view abortion as the murdering of children and this man stands to get you a conservative justice that would outlaw abortion, I can see that line of logic. I would have a lot of questions and be able to push and pull against that logic. And I would hopefully make a strong case that would change that logic, but I can understand it. If another Christian said to you who had voted for Trump, Mm -hmm. what's the big deal about voting for Trump? Why are other Christians upset about this? Mm -hmm. How would you answer that person? I would say that, you know, no politician is going to be Jesus (laughs) and no leader will be able to lead like Jesus. But I think his teachings are pretty clear about how to treat other people. And this is a president who has openly in public spheres been disrespectful to folks who are different or foreign. And I think Jesus's teachings are pretty clear on how we speak to at the very least or speak about folks who are outside the normal kind of status quo. (laughs) And I find that not a very attractive quality in a leader. I think that it paves the way for other folks to feel justified in acting similarly towards people that are also beloved of Jesus. And that makes me really sad and also very scared as a non-white or a half-white person. I think I'd want to know why they voted for Trump. And if it was because like, hey, you know what? I think we should have freer access to guns, so I voted for Trump. That's one thing. Right. If it's because, hey, I think we should stop spending so much money over Trump. That's 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 one thing. But if it's because, hey, you know, I really think he's going to make America a Christian nation. He's going to make the kinds of decisions and put the kinds of people in office that are going to create a more likely scenario that America, you know, turns back toward God and and becomes more conservative in those ways. If it was because they thought that he was going to make America Christian again. I just ask, you know, does the ends justify the means? I mean, a lot of my conversation with people came down to, yeah, okay, he might put, you know, more conservative people into office. He might make specific Supreme Court decisions, whatever it is. But it really feels like we're sacrificing something. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to make a straw man out of this, like saying, oh, well, the other side was completely ridiculous and they had no like a stand on. Sure. I think it was a tough decision to make. For me, it was not. But I know that people wrestling with this, it was a hard vote to cast. Most of the people I've talked to, it was it was a difficult decision to make, but it felt like a deal with the devil. It felt like, well, let's sacrifice some of our standards and principles because at the end it'll work out better for us. I don't I don't want to do that. You know, I, I think I think that for me, if I had done that, I'll speak for myself, it would have been putting faith in the system versus faith in Christ. Because I think that no matter who's president, no matter if America falls to North Korea next year, God is still on the throne, right? In Isaiah, there's this, there's this chapter, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the throne room of God. It's one of my favorite passages in all the scriptures. It's an amazing passage. But he starts out the chapter saying, it was in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the throne. I saw the Lord lifted up on high. And I remember reading that, you know, when I was younger, and you just kind of breeze past that. Okay, he's just trying to make sure people know when in time he's writing this. But that was, that's one of the most significant lines, I think, in that chapter, because King Uzziah was a good king, and he was king for 52 years. And when Israel had good kings, Israel did really well. When Israel had bad kings, Israel did poorly. 
So when a good king dies, everyone thinks, oh, like this could be it for us, right? So the fact that it was the year the king was I died, that was very significant. But that's when Esau got on his throne. And he's reminded, okay, you know what? God is still on his throne. He is still up there. He is still high and exalted, right? And that is what I'm going to hang on to. Uh, the reason that I'm upset is that we're, we're here to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we vote for someone who breaks every single rule, especially that the religious right and others have set out the standards that they have set out, the litmus test that they set out, and when you vote for them anyway, I think it shows a great deal of hypocrisy. That's just not the witness that we should be putting into the public square with an understanding that no candidate is perfect. So we, we're, we're not looking for perfection, but there is a bar that has to be set. Suppose I, c- I can understand this devil's advocate response, which would be, well, look, the religious right was wrong about that. And, you know, that's been proven by Bill Clinton and other leaders who did a decent job as president, even though they were bad people. And look, anyway, the other choice was Hillary. So there was no option here to vote for a morally good candidate. What do you say in response to that counter argument? It sounds very convenient. I, I understand why people wouldn't want to vote for Hillary. <laughs> I'm not I'm not blind to all her many flaws and the Clintons many flaws just because I'm a Democrat. It's one thing to say I'm holding my nose. I got to do it. That wasn't the general posture of a lot of people. The general posture was I'm excited. I want to vote for him. He's going to give us what we want. And that is just the wrong message to be sending as Christians. We're not here to protect ourselves. We're not here to only look out for our own interests. We're here to find common ground and be about human flourishing, which sometimes means that our interests are secondary and that we have to look after others. There is a question of like, is a Christian's job in the political sphere to look out for their own interests? Because in a democracy, everyone ought to look out for their own interests. And that's the best way. Or are Christians called rather? Nope. In a competitive democratic system with multiple voices, the Christian's job is to find the people who are being treated the worst and to side with them. You, you could say that is the fundamental thing that our Trump voter and our non-Trump voters disagree right. on. Next question. How about their interactions with Trump supporters during or since the election? Yes, some very, very, very close family members voted for him, and that hurt, and we had to have serious conversations. In our immediate family, um, there are a lot of groups, namely women, I have four sisters and a mom, right, where, where this candidate did some behavior that is untenable. We had to have some hard conversations to talk about. Help me understand how that reconciles in your mind. Over food and a beer, you understand how people can get to their decision. You don't always agree with it, but it makes sense. The people talk about the economy. You're talking about abortion. You talk about this. And it's, it's hard for me to hear, and it actually hurts me when your vote for the economy supersedes my physical safety. When your vote for the economy supersedes the safety of my LGBTQ brothers and sisters, the safety of immigrants, the safety of women, the safety of children, the safety of everybody who isn't a straight white male Trump voter, right? That's hard to hear. That's hard to to reconcile. 
there have been some painful interactions, but still personal relationships and personal connectivity for me have superseded political stuff. It does make it hard to talk. Like Paul writes about this, we are not fighting against flesh and blood, right? We're fighting against principalities and powers. And I, I profoundly believe that I don't have a human enemy. My enemy is pitting humans against each other and have, has seduced us into believing that the answer to all my problems would be to kill or to get rid of or to defeat another human. And that, I mean, we just see that from the beginning of the Bible where that's the, that's the ultimate lie, right? This goes back to Genesis 3, right, where the snake in the garden convinces Adam, if I can throw Eve under the bus, I'll be okay, right? So from the beginning of the narrative, that has been the lie. If I can just get rid of Eve, if I can just get rid of Trump, if I can just get rid of Obama, if I can just get rid of the Mexicans, if I can just get rid of the gays, if I can just get rid of the blacks, everything will be all right. And we know that's just factually not true. It's just not true. And we've tried it over and over and over. And we fell victim to uh, the elixir, which is, a, which is a flat out lie from the pit of hell, that if I can kill or get rid of or exterminate a group of humans, everything will be all right. I think I'm sort of ashamed to say that I've probably avoided having conversations with anyone who I suspect may have voted for Trump about. Kind of out of self-preservation or something? Yeah, definitely. So I'm a campaign strategist. I run campaigns and things of that nature. So I was running a campaign of my own, but I stopped by, I think it was like a, a restaurant. And I was talking to the owner and he said very clearly, I think he'll be helpful for small business owners. We get taxed way too much. It's hard for me to stay in business and all that other stuff is just details. I'm going to vote for him. I also talked to a older brother. He said Clinton's too corrupt. You got the feeling that it was just time for the system to change and put somebody in there who's going to be kind of a bull in a china shop. How did you react to those those two arguments? So the, one of them is the small business and then one of them is just we got to break this system up and try something new. I raised some questions. I raised some questions, brought up some of the issues that I had that I've named before, because I don't think everything else is just details. And if you blow the system up, there's no guarantee it's, it's all going to come back together again. So is that really the most constructive way to go about it? But at the end of the day, I was respectful. Their responses seemed somewhat thoughtful to me, even though I disagreed with them. And so I wasn't going to start an argument or anything like that. I, I heard them out and we, we kind of went our separate ways. Okay, Alan, now we get to do my favorite question for the voter episodes. Do you remember what it is? No, I have no idea. It is, what is the one thing you wish that the other side understood oh. about you and your community? So in this case, I asked them both about Trump supporting Christians and also about the white church more broadly. And we'll get kind of a mix of those two answers. I don't want to lump all Christian Trump voters into one category. There's there's a tremendous amount of diversity in that demographic. I would want them to know that we're not that different. You know, we all want the same things. We want good schools for our kids. We want enough food on our table. We want enough money in the bank account to take a vacation every once in a while. We want to love our wives and husbands. We want to play catch in the front lawn. We, we disagree on how, how to get there. I would hope that they would be able to understand that the fear is legitimate. <laughs> it's one thing when you have an experience on the street with just a random Joe Schmo who says something racial and inappropriate and disrespectful. It's another thing when you hear someone who has that much power and authority and leadership saying things that are of that nature. It feels really threatening and it feels really scary 
that if a leader can say those things, who else has been also wanting to say those things to me who hasn't? And are they going to start? And I would hope that they would be able to connect to their own experiences in their own lives where they've felt threatened and that that would be something that could help us relate to each other. I think it probably comes back to my belief that my hope is not in the person in the White House. And I think there's a lot in that statement, you know, so I don't mean to make that just just throw away. We are to have a hope, a hope. People are to see the hope that is within us and ask about Jesus, basically. I mean, hope is a big thing. And God's going to win. We've seen the ending of the story. I think it's Billy Graham that said that. I've seen the ending. I've read the last page. I, I know who wins, right? And sometimes in the conversations I have with Christian Trump voters, it almost feels like they're unsure of that. You know, that they're, they're making these decisions out of fear versus faith. And it's like, well, if, if he's not in there, if Hillary wins or if whatever, then all is lost. And it's like, no, you know what? All is not lost. All is not lost. Well, again, that's another tough question because I, I don't think Trump voters are a monolith, but sure. maybe your generic Trump voter, you, you may just want to say, look, here are the reasons that I had a problem with Trump. When he disrespects Muslims, when he disrespects African-Americans, it causes a larger rift between Christian relations and just relations in society. It is not productive. And we don't need leaders at this crucial time who are not being productive. What do you wish that white Christians understood about the non-white church in America? I want the white Christian church to lament the fact that we have a white Christian church, right? In Galatians, Paul clearly writes, there's neither Greek nor slave. In Jesus, there's no Jew or Gentile. In Jesus, all are one. At the foot of the cross, everybody's equal. And I would lovingly implore and challenge white Christians to lament and repent. Change the course that was set on this idea as white as the standard and its fusion with Christianity. That has done more damage, just as much damage as anything has in this country's history. And until we can sit and wrestle with and fix, redress those decisions, we can't move forward as a church. What about white Christians? Does your answer change at all? What do you wish that we white Christians understood about non-white Christians within the church? I mean, I would want them to really think through the history of Christianity and especially among communities of color, like meditate on that. And not just in a historical sense, but like to really feel to really try to understand the conflict of, of a non-white Christian, that I have these Christian beliefs and, and faith, which are beautiful, and I'm grateful for this good news. And also there's a really deep grief that this has come at the cost of a lot of beautiful cultural things that I think, as Christianity spread among communities of color, really had to be dismantled. And that yeah, it's, you, I mean, think about your mom mm-hmm. being Panamanian, right? Mm-hmm. So central and latin america i mean christianity got there Mm -hmm. but it didn't get there in a beautiful fashion i mean how do Mm -hmm. you make sense of that fact that that heritage is conquistadors and pestilence and whatever it's hard to reconcile those two things i don't know that i have been able to in the same way it's hard to reconcile being part you know white and and non-white what do i do with this jesus who i really love and also with this knowledge that there is a long, another long history of, of spiritual tradition 
and culture that had to be killed for that. This is a good thing, and I'm grateful for it, and yet there has been a cost that feels really deep, and I, I would wish that white Christians could understand or at least empathize with the conflict that all non-white Christians carry within them. So much of the message, I think, in, among white Christians sometimes, it can kind of sound a lot like whitewashing. We're all daughters and sons of Jesus, and so what it means to like be Christian means to like almost become this new ethnicity in a way. Which is good in the sense that, like, I can feel equal among my peers, but not if it means at the cost of, like, if that means I need to step over the line and get rid of everything of what I have, but you don't have to do the same. That's not what the message of Jesus is in my understanding. What do you wish that white Christians understood about the non-white church? Well, again, I'm I'm, going to have to keep giving this disclaimer. I know that white Christians are different. So are we talking about modernist churches? Are we talking about evangelicals. I'm guessing we're talking about yeah, evangelicals. Yeah, if we have to pick, let's talk about white evangelicals. I would say that understand that social concern is bigger than just abortion. You hear a lot of people saying social justice warrior this, social justice is bad and all these issues. That word needs to be redeemed to some extent because it has been misused. But what do you call it when you're you're fighting for pro-life causes? Is that not social justice? Hmm, um, interesting. And so I want people to see the bigger picture because that's an issue that's important to me as well. But I want people to see the bigger picture that there are other issues that people are going through that need attention. And it doesn't have to take away. It's not a zero-sum game. It doesn't have to take away from the pro-life cause. What do you got, Ellen? Here are the notes that I wrote down. Okay. What did you write? I loved, was it Jason? I love that he said that the white church needs to lament and repent of the white church. The fact that there is a white church. The f- yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. That, that was really convicting yeah. for me, which started making me think. Well, oh. And we, we should talk a little bit about that because something that I've learned recently, for instance, it's not that all of the racial groups sort of organically separated into like-skinned... Like the Tower of Babel That's in reverse. N- yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was not reverse Tower of Babel. Actually, almost every, if not every, we'll hear from Jamar Tisby later about this, but black denominations started primarily when white denominations would not let black men become pastors. So it's not that all the black people were like, eh, we'd rather hang out together. It was that they weren't allowed to preach. And so they started, they said, we're created in the image of God. We're going to start our own denomination, mm-hmm. at least in the Protestant world. I just hate that it has to be a denomination. Well, then you should be a Catholic oh, crap. or That's Orthodox. A, well, well, so if you're not willing to go there. <laughs> I just mean. You want to be ecumenical. Here, Here's what I want to say. Earlier when we were talking about the how awkward it is to start those conversations and be in them, but to start them specifically. Listening to this, them talking about the white church, this is something that I have thought about a lot the last few years, especially having a kid and wanting her to be surrounded by people of all colors and all walks of life, all faiths. How do I diversify my church experience as a white person? Mm -hmm. Do I go find a black church. That doesn't seem appropriate at all. It might be. 
but that doesn't seem appropriate at all. Especially, well, one of the reasons I was saying earlier about not wanting to have those conversations out of obligation. And I don't want to be like, well, I looked up, I Googled black church and you were there. So I showed up to this one. (laughs) I mean, how do I, it has to happen somewhat organically and I, Maybe. I'm not going to throw myself into a predominantly black church that doesn't, it, that doesn't make any sense, right? What, what happens when black people come to your predominantly white church? I'm sure that they feel like it, it feels uncomfortable for Somebody them. has to start not I know. doing it. Why, it could go either way. This is my question is yeah. how do we, how does that start and well, how... thankfully, Ellen, we have two whole episodes coming up on right reconciliation between the black and white church, but uh, we're just going to have to wait okay, for that. Well, it's a teaser. Then I'll pause. I'll scratch off the rest of my notes. I'll pause. I did have one thing to say about wishing that there weren't denominations. I mean, look, I am as ecumenical as they come as far as Christians go. What does ecumenical mean? It means uh, the entire body of Christ okay. sort of on an equal footing and communing People with each other. People are so glad that I ask you what words mean. <laughs> that might be true. Anyway, uh, but I'm not going to criticize the people who started the African-American denominations because they literally had nowhere to no, get ordained. No, absolutely right, not. Yeah. Absolutely not. I certainly didn't okay. mean to. Yeah. Just clearing that up. I mean, like in that case, so some of the splintering of Protestantism, which is unfortunate how many denominations we have, but at least those ones seem like a pretty good idea to have started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to disagree with that. No. And the best worship music of all time. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, there's that too. To just make a blanket statement. Also, this whole episode and the last one, I kept forgetting that these people looked the way that they looked. Hmm. And hearing their experiences, I kept thinking, Rachel doesn't sound like a Latina. Right. And Jason doesn't sound like a black man. Hmm. And it lit all of this, all of this systemic bullshit and this hurt. And the fact that there is such a great divide between us and them, it, it's solely because of the the way that they look. Isn't yeah. that wild? It's kind of wild. I to mean, think I'm about sitting it. here yeah. listening to Jason, Jason, and I'll forget that he's black, and then he will say something, and then I'll remember that he's black. Hmm. If he was sitting in front of me, I sure. I maybe wouldn't. this is the magic of radio in a sense that it's like maybe radio's the answer. I mean, it, it, certainly every medium has its up its pluses and minuses. And maybe I think this it's is, important yeah. to have an identity, and I certainly don't want to say like Jason has lost his blackness no, because I, I just mean it's nice black. that you just hear him as a person when you know because you're not seeing right. And There's I a think to that. W- well, my point is just to point to the ridiculousness of racism mm-hmm. and the us and them. And how some of us have different privileges because of the color of our skin. And I think we yeah. have to stop and be reminded of how fucking ridiculous that is. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I said in the earlier episode that these voters were not born to parents of European descent. That is, <laughs> that's the difference. I was born to parents of European descent. They were not. That's the whole difference. Right. And then... Last episode, I don't remember who it was, but they were talking about how they had white European, I think it was Polish parents, mm-hmm. which didn't used to mean didn't white, but now it white. means white. Now it does. Yep. 
white I mean whiteness is not a real thing and this, there's a lot of right. ink about well, races this races aren't a real thing right race it, everything is a gradient everybody actually kind of comes from Africa if you go back far enough well, it's and a, race you know. is a made up thing yeah it's a category that our brains find very useful and you can notice differences and you can measure differences but there's no actual cutoff point for anything I mean every single human being alive today has like two to four percent Neanderthal in them did you know that in 2016 was the first time when over 50% of the babies born in America were not white? I did not know that. And there are... And it's continuing. I think people this year who are was worried about that probably, 52 which is 52 or 53. But, but, but yeah. 2016, I think, I might have this wrong, but within a couple number, within a couple digits, I think it was 51 or 52%. It was, we finally got over 50%, like everybody's going to start to be brown. And I think that's so fantastic. I mean, 53% is not enough for everybody to hey, start to be brown. <laughs> but at some point it was like, you know. But have you ever thought about the fact that you're part Neanderthal? Do you think no, like, I don't well, think about how that. much of it would I need to be for me to be Neanderthal race instead of human? Like, no, this is not how it works. Like, there are no real lines. There's no amount that makes you something. I just found out I was 7% Portuguese and hey. I feel a little less white. But does that... <laughs> Well, you, no, because no. I'm just white. Okay. Next question for these voters. Second to last question. Some conservative people think when they see, for instance, the kneeling before the national anthem and stuff, they think, look, these people don't know what they have. They don't love America. They just want to protest. Ungrateful. They're ungrateful. Something like that. Sometimes we can feel that way. And I thought a good way to address that would be to ask them, what do they love about America? And just hear it in their own words. Love Thanksgiving, man. I love that we have a holiday that yeah. celebrates good food, good people, with little expectation other than you just come together to enjoy food and people. There's no expectation of gifts. There's no expectation of receiving things. I, I love that there was a country founded on the idea that all men were created equal, all mankind, all people were created equal, and on paper. The ideas are beautiful and God-honoring and glorifying that all people are given the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. I love that the founding documents challenge us to live up to the best of the ideals of the human experience. I'm an immigrant, and as an immigrant, I've been able to see other countries and, and the opportunities provided to people in other countries. And there are a lot of places in the world, I won't say most of the world, though, that might be true, but there are a lot of places in the world where if you are born into the wrong family or into the wrong sect or the wrong demographic, doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how well you do in school, you do not have the opportunities that someone else might have. Here in the States, that exists as well. So I'm not going to pretend like that doesn't happen here. There's certainly people that are born into classes that make it much more likely for you to succeed and go to school and do all of these things. But it's much better here than a lot of other places. And I think that that chance for opportunity is huge. And that's why immigrants flock here. You know, that's why they come. That's why they want their sons and daughters to grow up in this country. I think a lot of it has to do with the opportunities that are afforded here to those who are willing to work hard. So that's one of the things that I think I love about America. I do think also that's one of the things that makes America great um, is the fact that you know, I think it was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and there is an idea of the equality of people. There's an idea of of a civil public square where people can come with different faiths. You know, you can be friends with a Muslim and a Hindu and a Christian, and that's okay. They can celebrate uh, their faith in real ways, and they should be allowed to. As Christians, I don't think 
we win anything by forcing people to be Christian. I don't think we win anything by making it hard for people to celebrate their faith. Because at, at best, what we get is a bunch of people pretending to be Christian because they think that's what everyone wants them to be. The Constitution, minus some of its flaws, was an ingenious document that did give us the opportunity to make right religious liberty, something that you do not see in a lot of other countries. And it's something that we have to protect. We have to have that conversation. And those are some of the things that I really appreciate about America. We don't always get it right, but the ideals of America have been stronger than a lot of other countries. Our final question to these voters is, in terms of the direction our country is heading, what scares you the most and what are you the most encouraged by? What scares me the most is that we would fall victim and fall prey to this tribalism that would ultimately lead to, that would ultimately become weaponized. I'm talking about actual arms here where folks would give up on each other and double down on the lie that we're enemies. Everybody gets their perfect little narrative and they stick with it regardless of what the facts say. And, you know, sometimes it feels like even more than my tribe or your tribe doing better, I want your tribe to do worse, right? Hmm. I want to see you hurt. And so that's a lot of what I see on social media and other places. I want to see you and your people hurt because you've hurt me. And that really scares me because it's not necessary. It's certainly not biblical. It's not in line with the gospel. And we see Christians who are even engaging in some of that stuff as if you're justified because you've been hurt to pain others. That's what scares me the most. When you look at the grotesque nature of Charlottesville, one of the things that immediately impacted me from looking at that coverage was that I couldn't tell who was who. When the protesters were clashing with the with the Nazis, I couldn't clearly tell immediately who was who. And that comforted my soul because uh, not only were— You mean ethnically you couldn't tell who was in what group? Exactly. Because not only were there white brothers and sisters out there protesting against these really sort of disgusting ideas— They're also putting their bodies on the line. Through the AND campaign, I've got to meet a lot of very gifted and committed and faithful young Christians. There's a generation of Christians coming up in this country who are theologically strong, who understand the importance of social concern, who are bold enough to uphold their biblical convictions, even in a culture where those are frowned upon. That is really encouraging and keeps me going because God, the spirit is moving among this next generation. A lot of different millennials who are very serious about the things that are going on, but also able to maintain an outlook of hope and a vision of reconciliation that you might not have seen in prior generations. I don't know what we can possibly add to that. I don't think we should add anything. (laughs) Let's not add anything. Thank you guys for listening especially those of you who got all the way to the end of these clips, these episodes, these voters. I don't know. I've, I've learned a lot. Yeah, me too. This was awesome. Have they already heard the anxiety episode at this point? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. What are you going to say? Say it. I just remembered how afraid you were when you thought that Jesus was going to come back and you weren't ever going to see a naked woman. <laughs> yeah, that uh, yeah, that puts the trouble of some of these other communities into perspective. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff I'm dealing with. Some so, people uh, deal with deportation, but aren't you glad you're married? 
<laughs> is that okay? Let's cut this out. What's that supposed I to don't relate? know. It all worked out is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Let's move on. Fixing the problem, A. It's not, okay. it'd be, it's burp, beep, boop, beep, boop. Really like social, social, help me. None Socioeconomic? Of them, <laughs> I want to redo that yeah. because I don't want to sound like an idiot. Which is what nice. does gravitas mean? Come on. I think I'm going to have a new podcast idea, which is asking you what words mean. <laughs> Are people still listening to this podcast, Dan?